Welcome to Book to Wear. Two guys, original pod booked guys, tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Um, Rob, I've got to tell you, the response to Frank being on the podcast has been kind of strong. Ha- has it? Because I haven't really seen anything. I was a big fan of it. Oh, that was that's the response. I mean, that's I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a fair response, right? right. So, right. Uh, so, how you doing, buddy? It's been I'm a good. long time. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a couple weeks. Um, I'm good. I'm good. I'm re- I'm relaxed. I'm rested. Had some fun down in Texas. I don't know what we want to. Talk. I don't know how far you want to go into this. I mean, that's entirely up to you. Is your trip? I, I'm just. Uh, I, I'm glad that I got to to chat with Misty and Jesse while you were down there. That's always nice. Yeah, totally. Is there a, is there a specific highlight that you want to like? Is there anything that like really stood out on this trip? Um. So like, I don't know, because you your trips lately have been like you and your girlfriend. Uh, you haven't gone on like a, a group of friends trip in a while. Am I right about that? Yes, that is correct. All right. So, uh, the thing, so the thing that the good and bad thing about the group of friends type of trip or the conference type of trip is that like, you got a bunch of people together. It's exciting and everybody wants to go do stuff. Um, but the bad, it's also the bad thing. Cause it's like, you're nonstop having to figure out like, what are we going to do next? Where are we going to go to eat? And like trying to like accommodate for everybody's, you know, little idiosyncratic needs. Are you trying to talk? Tell me there were a bunch of bitches while you were down there. No, the exact opposite. So like you were you were a bitch. I definitely <laughs> that too. <laughs> um, we were just so chill about shit. Like uh, it, it, we, uh, it was the first trip like this I've ever done where like we, you know, is getting close to planning for what we're gonna eat for dinner, and we were just like, why don't we just DoorDash something? So we DoorDash like several nights instead of going out and doing something fancy. We just kind of hung out and had food brought in. That's cool. So it was like- very relaxing, very laid back. We didn't try and like push to do a ton of stuff. It was just chill. Cool. I'm glad you I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah, and I drove. Yeah, that's just fucking dumb. So- <laughs> I can't even I can't process driving to fucking Texas and back. Well, the upside to that, uh we we haven't had a chance to talk about because uh I've been gone and um, someone's been trying to fill my shoes is I got to see some longtime friends of the podcast when I was in Kansas. I'm not going to pretend like I don't know about this, but do tell, do tell the listeners. Cause this yeah. is pretty cool. So I, I, uh, there's a, there's a long tradition. There's a long story of, of us knowing these authors, but, um, I got to meet up with Caleb Ross, uh, Gordon Highland and Brandon Teets as I stopped for in Kansas for the night. Um, and it, it came up because we've kind of, cause Caleb stopped writing. Gordon isn't really active with writing right now. And, and Brandon, uh, wasn't always as close to us as the others. So anyway, um, we, you know, as the, as the writing thing t- calmed down, so did the communication and stuff. And we didn't really talk much lately, but I was messaging with Caleb about something. And he's like, man, if you're ever down here, we have to go grab drinks. So when I was planning my trip, I was like, Oh man, Kansas City is almost exactly halfway between, you know, Chicago and Dallas. So uh, I hit up Caleb and I said, "Hey, can we do this?" And he's like, "Yeah." And he got all excited. So uh, yeah, we went there and we ended up going to a barbecue place. Naturally, we were in Kansas City. Just, yeah. What else do they have there? Uh, they have a speakeasy. Oh. We went to a speakeasy. Wait. 
Wait, if I had to guess, can I guess which one of the three yeah, brought guess. up a speakeasy? Is it Brandon? No. Really? I'm surprised. That sounds like it, it might be. Uh, well, I'm going to describe. Thing. I'm going to describe the speakeasy, and then I'll let you re-guess. <laughs> so the speakeasy is called Swordfish Tom's, I think, and um, apparently that is a um, Tom Waits reference. Like the musician oh, Tom Waits. Okay, all right. And the whole idea of this place is like, you know, you go in there, you have to knock, and they let you in. Um, and it's this really kind of quiet, it's just like mismatched, um, like chairs and stuff. Very cozy, dark um, place where you're, you're not supposed to be too loud. And there's rules, like you can't be on your phone. You can't be talking on your phone. You can't take photos. Like, you can look at your phone for, like, emails or whatever, that kind of thing. But, like, mm-hmm. the whole idea is to, like, be off the phone, be social, but also be quiet and respectful of the people around you. I mean, that sounds like it's right up my alley, quite frankly, because that's one of the things <laughs> I hate about bars is, like, the noise and yeah. the, you know what I mean? Like, it's nice to go sit somewhere where you can actually chit-chat without having to talk over other people and stuff. So, um, you said Tom Waits, which then makes me think it was Caleb's idea. Yeah, it was Caleb's idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Up until then, I was like, oh, no, well, that's got to be Gordon. But no, yeah. no, it sounds like the Caleb's idea. I'm glad you got to hang out with those guys. It is, It has been a long time. And um, some of the first, I mean, Caleb Ross, arguably, is the first interview that we did for this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. So, and I say arguably because I think we posted a different interview first, but I think he was the first one we actually talked to when we started this podcast eight and a half years ago. Yeah. Yeah, he's the one that turned us on to the warmed and bound thing. He's the yep. one that got that ball rolling, and then it's all history from there. So yeah, it was it was nice to see that. Me and Brandon came up with a, a really awful and offensive joke that maybe I'll tell you off the air. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I think I actually of. know. I think I, I think you sent me this joke. Does it have to do with suicide? <laughs> no, no, it had to do with vaping. Oh no. Oh, no, that was separate, yeah. Okay. Um, Here's what I will say. Caleb did make a recommendation that we review a video game, and Rob and I have not really had a chance to speak about this, but um, I purchased that video game, and I think there might be something to it. So maybe early next year we we might review Mm -hmm. a video game. Yeah, he was talking to me about it, and I said, straight up, I said, the only way this is going to happen is if you get Livius on board. So he so took that I haven't heart. gotten back to him. I literally <laughs> bought it. I think it was that night or the next night after he messaged me. Yeah. Um, the problem is that video game came up at the same time, roughly, as Call of Duty Modern Warfare, which is what's been eating up all my extra non-work, non-reading time. But then I hung back because I was like, well, if we're going to do this later, we have to. I have to get you on board. So I don't want to like play through it again. But I will say it's interesting. It's not what you think a video game is. I will say that. Cool. Yeah, he said he was he was very excited about the storytelling aspect of it. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to check it out. Well, and you know, I think I've... he's. I want to say I think he's right. And I've only played through the first like, I'd say like three chapters, if that's the right way to to phrase it. Yeah. Um. But I I, I think he's right. I think he's on something that might be a a great story writer that um, took his craft to video games instead of you know, novels. Cool. Well, we'll see where that goes. Maybe that'll, maybe that could bring Caleb back onto the podcast. I like Caleb. Although fuck Caleb J Ross. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Old old joke for, for anybody Uh, that's been around for a while. Yeah. 
we talked about the uh the end of his writing career which was uh us giving him a book called fcjr oh, jesus i mean you know he said I, I something sweet though I, I don't know if i told you what he said um but we were talking about that and i was like dude if i knew that making a parody book making fun of you would end your writing career i probably wouldn't have given it to you and he said that nothing in his writing career would have been would have made him happier than getting that book like even getting signed on a on a big five publisher i um that's very very cool maybe we'll maybe we'll retell that story at some point down the line but jesus man do we have a lot to fucking go through tonight oh yeah we should probably get that yeah <laughs> just, I was like, just oh to talk God. about rob podcast get our notes here's what we're doing tonight um since rob has been away and we missed an episode and then we had a a, a guest host and stuff we are not reviewing one book we are reviewing two books um yep. I don't. I feel like we've only done this one other time where we've reviewed two books at the same time, and it was. Oh, my memory's going to fail me here. It was Chris Deal's book, and somebody else's. DB Cox. DB Cox. So that was probably seven plus years ago. Unaccustomed uh, Mercy and Cien Fuegos, but there was actually a different time too. Um, what was the other time? We reviewed Gordon Highland's book, uh, Flashover. Had okay. another book. Uh, I can't remember what other book we talked about. There was two books we talked about in that episode. Gotcha. For only the third time. <laughs> we're reviewing two books. And they are, in this order, Gwendy's Button Box, as written by Richard Chismar and Stephen King, and Gwendy's Magic Feather, the sequel, which is written by Richard Chismar. Yeah, he tweeted about this, and actually at at mentioned us on Twitter, and that's how this kind of got on my radar. I don't know if you knew about it before that. And um, I was like, all right, uh, the because the, it was around the release time for Gwendy's Magic Feather. And I was like, yeah, whatever, like, uh, I'm up for this kind of thing. And then looking into it, discovered that it was the sequel to Gwendy's Button Box. But then looking into it, it was a novella, and I was like, oh, maybe we could do this. And Livia said, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure how this wasn't on my radar. And, you know, we can get into this a little more during the um, the actual review. But, uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a little excited. Um, and, it, and it goes should probably go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, because we're reviewing a book and its sequel, some things we say might kind of spoil a little bit of what happened in the first book. And that's just unavoidable. We're going to try and stick to the rule of if it's in the synopsis for magic feather um and it spoils button box we'll we'll probably go there but we'll still try and um leave the the stories as much of a surprise as we can that being said we're gonna spend the next seven or eight minutes reading a couple of bios (laughs) and and i think maybe we'll do one synopsis and then maybe we'll save the other synopsis after we talk about the first book that probably makes the most sense right so i'll i'll kick it off there's this fella named stephen king He is the author of more than 60 books, all of them worldwide bestsellers, which, holy crap, is that impressive. I guess I've never thought about that, that they're all worldwide bestsellers. His most recent work includes The Institute, Elevation, The Outsider, Sleeping Beauties, and the Bill Hodges trilogy, End of Watch, Finders Keepers, and Mr. Mercedes. His novel 112263 was named a top 10 book of 2011 by the New York Times Book Review and won the Los Angeles Times 
Times Book Prize for Mystery Thriller. His epic works, The Dark Tower and It, are the basis for major motion pictures with It now the highest grossing horror film of all time. He is the recipient of the 2018 Pen America Literary Service Award and the 2014 National Medal of Arts and the 2003 National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. He lives in Bangor, Maine with his wife, novelist Tabitha King. Woot. How does his bio not just say it's Stephen King, it's dude? Stephen fucking King. Like, yeah. yeah, like that's yeah, like that's all it really needs to say. But, you know, I don't know. Wasn't there something... I remember a little dust up about something where someone mentioned Tabitha King as being Stephen King's wife instead of being a novelist and they got shit on for it. Like they were kind of being reductive about her. That sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. But you know, in, in whoever's defense <laughs> when you're like the, the, let's say the probably the best selling author maybe of all time. I, I don't know how they calculate that, but he's got to be up there. Right. Like, it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to be Stephen King something if you're related to Stephen King. I, I, I can see why you would say that, yeah. It, it would it would be something like if, if his son, either one of them, Joe Hill, Owen King, like became president, right. they'd still be like Stephen King's kid, the president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, that's my thought on it. But let's not let's not dwell on it. We have one more bio to do. Here we go. Richard Chismar is the co-author with Stephen King of the New York Times bestselling novella, Wendy's Button Box. Recent books include The Girl on the Porch, The Long Way Home, his fourth short story collection, and Widow's Point, a chilling tale about a haunted lighthouse written with his son, Billy Chismar, which was recently made into a feature film. I was not aware of that. That's awesome. His short fiction has appeared in dozens of publications, including Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine and the year's 25 finest crime and mystery stories. He has won two World Fantasy Awards, four International Horror Guild Awards, and the HWA's Board of Trustees Award. His work has been translated into more than 15 languages throughout the world, and he's appeared at numerous conferences as a writing instructor, guest speaker, panelist, and guest of honor. And then there's some social media stuff, but you have Google, so figure it out. I um, I'm not criticizing this bio. I'm criticizing this type of wording. Do you think when they say it's been translated into more than 15 languages, they're just they don't want to say 16, <laughs> or it's like so constantly evolving that it's just safer to say more than 15 because by the time we're reading this, it could be 18 or 20. Well, the more than is is definitely more timeless than saying 16. Yeah. Um. So that this bio definitely is probably going to get more mileage out of it. I would say that that would be why. <laughs> Like when people say like, you know, more than a hundred, you go, okay, well you get it. Cause maybe it's one Oh three, one Oh four, but like 15 seems like a weird number to say more than, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on that. <laughs> All right. Um, here's the synopsis for Gwendy's button box. I know I'm going to keep enunciating it cause it's not Wendy and it's not like Gwenny. It's Gwendy, like Gwen and Wendy, like Gwendy, Gwendy's button box. It is set in the fictional town of Castle Rock, Maine. Rob, are you at all familiar with Castle Rock? Um, there's a TV show, right? Yeah. The vast majority of Stephen King books take place in Castle Rock. Or around Castle Rock. I shouldn't say the majority. Like, they all take place in Castle Rock. But right. that is that is a way of knowing it's a Stephen King book. Stephen King teams up with longtime friend and award-winning author Richard Chismar for the first time in this original, chilling novella that revisits the mysterious town of Castle Rock. 
There are three ways up to Castle View from the town of Castle Rock. Route 117, Pleasant Road, and the Suicide Stairs. Every day in the summer of 1974, 12-year-old Gwendy Peterson has taken the stairs, which are held by strong, if time-rusted, iron bolts and zigzag up the precarious cliffside. Then one day, when Gwendy gets to the top of Castleview, after catching her breath and hearing the shouts of kids on the playground below, a stranger calls to her. There, on a bench in the shade, sits a man in black jeans, a black coat, and a white shirt unbuttoned at the top. On his head is a small, neat black hat. The time will come when Gwendy has nightmares about that hat. The little town of Castle Rock, Maine, has witnessed some strange events and unusual visitors over the years, but there is one story that has never been told. Until now. Bum, bum, bum. Right? So, um, I literally, the first line of the synopsis is the first line of the book, if memory serves correctly. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's Gwendy Peterson. She is, uh, about to go into middle school and, uh, she's, uh, she's a little on the heavier set side and kids have started making fun of her. So she is determined to not, you know, spend the rest of her school career being called Goodyear. Um, and she has uh, pledged herself to losing some weight before school starts. And the one, one of the ways that she does this is by running up these suicide stairs, Rocky Balboa style every day. Mm-hmm. Um, to uh, to take off some pounds, man. Kids are fucking horrible. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. Uh, I don't know how I avoided that as a kid because I was chubby. No one called me Goodyear. Um, yeah. So she gets up to the top of the stairs, and it's all it's it's kind of introspective about like why she's doing it, like Livy's explained. And just as the synopsis said, basically Nick Cave is waiting at the top for her, and um, he's sitting at a bench, and he and he does that like. Now this takes place. I guess it, it bears mentioning. Oh yeah, it's, it says it in the synopsis in 1974. So like, I'm sure Stranger Danger was a thing. Were you when were you born, Livius? 72. Okay, so you were two when this takes place. Um, yes. But I don't like. I don't know if it's the same as it is now, where like basically, if you don't know a child, like you are forbidden from even like looking at them. Um, but still like they're like talking to a stranger was, was a thing that you weren't supposed to do. And he just had this kind of charming or at least not, uh, not threatening, non-threatening kind of a kind of air about him. So he, he tries to start talking to her and even when it gets a little bit weird, like he's non-threatening enough where she keeps talking to him. She sits down on the bench and stuff like that. And, um, but he does say some stuff that's like, I've been watching you. And it's like the moment I've been watching you came out of the dude's mouth i'd be like all right i'd be that spongebob meme the like i'm a i'm a head out yeah yeah that's uh that's fair but um gwendy is young it is the early 70s my parents always told me not to talk to strangers but then they also thought i should talk to all the neighbors so <laughs> around that time maybe it was a little weird on like how you you know like right. how you handle these things um but yeah he essentially um not only tells her that he's been keeping an eye on her but he offers her um, a, a gift slash solution to her biggest problem, which is this this wanting to not be the, the center of negative attention from her classmates. And hence, we have the title of the book, Wendy's Button Box. She is provided with a box. Um, and again, I don't want to get into too much of this, but just know that there is a um, daily reward system that you can use or something you can get from this box every day. And that will help her on her path to being a healthy 
and fit young lady. There are also buttons on the box, and those have some very negative consequences um, when used. Yeah, and so he doesn't explicitly tell her when he gives her the box like what will happen. He gives her some general ideas um, about like if you like if you try to press one of the buttons, like you got to really work it. It's not just gonna go. Um, so he he preps her for like how to use it but he doesn't tell her specifically what negative things could happen but he she kind of has some ideas and he doesn't dissuade her from them so when she receives this box she's a general idea that like um it could be used to do some really bad stuff um but she accepts it like like a almost like a guardian of the box and um then that's kind of the launch of the story after that it gets into very much one of my observations about the book is that it's the day-to-day life of this girl um i would say that uh, like there's there's not as as much of an emphasis on there's you know some sort of conflict that needs to be resolved in like a typical three-act structure it's very much just like a relationship between her and this box and how it uh, affects her life and and watching her grow with it would you agree with that livius yeah it is it is so this i don't want to get away from your question but the structure of this book is not just her day-to-day life this novella covers a number of years yeah so yeah it, it kind of checks in with her at different points so that we can see how she's doing and I think it's safe to say that thanks to the box, by and large, she's doing really, really well. Yeah, yeah. Things start to. Not only does she get like in shape and and become more athletic and 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 even attractive, but like, it seems like things just kind of naturally fall in her favor. Um, and it's not a hundred percent sure whether it's the box that's causing it or if she's just like, like life is good, but um it's hinted but left kind of un- unclear for the most part over the course of the book we do not only see the the positive benefits but we do see the results um of the button usage on the box and this is really where i think we have to kind of stay really vague and potentially you know kind of cut off the the story portion because mm-hmm. this is pretty short i think it's 176 pages on amazon is the listing for it yeah. so so it is pretty short and like i said it covers six years i think it is in a very short period of time so it's not super in-depth but it does check in at all the right points in gwendy's life for us to get a good idea what's going on yep um it's not a huge cast of characters either i'd point out um so the she meets the person who has the box. The character's name is Richard Ferris. I mention it now because it's probably going to come up when we talk about the next book. Um, she's got a friend named Olive. There's a boyfriend. There's a creepy kid that you know from school. But there's not a lot of. I mean, there's obviously there's more characters than that, but there's not a lot more. So it's a very Gwendy focused story with like a, you know a small cast of supporting characters. And there does end up being kind of a, a conflict resolution type situ- conflict slash resolution type situation that happens in the later parts of the book. But like, really, um, yeah, there's not much more to, to say as far as like story goes than that. 
All right, for the remainder of this particular discussion, um, I'll be talking mostly to Stephen King fans because this <laughs> is a <laughs> this is a Castle Rock story, um, and that that has uh, some meaning. So Rob mentioned you know, the Castle Rock TV show, which um, I watched the first season of. I, I wasn't really enamored with it, but the the way that you know that TV show works, and without getting into you know real specific, I'm kind of just going off the top of my head, but they'll be like, oh. Yeah, my cousin lived next door to a guy whose dog went crazy, ate up a bunch of people. And then that's clearly a reference to Cujo, right? Um, the Castle Rock story has Sheriff Alan Pangborn, who's appeared in a number of um, Castle Rock stories, including this one. Um, so there are some characters um, that make appearances that are from other Stephen King stories, um, which is really, really cool. Uh, and I, uh, you know, to, to preface this, I read a lot of Stephen King um, when I was a youngster. The last 10 years or so since this podcast started, very little, essentially just what we've reviewed on the podcast for, for the most part, other than that last book, um, Wind Through the Keyhole or whatever it was called, the last Dark Tower book that, that he did. So um, I'm sure there are things that I missed there, but uh, Alan Pangborn is not one of them. And there is another character that makes appearance in there, and that's Harry Streeter, who is also from another Stephen King book. So, and, and I'm sure I missed references um, throughout, um, but that those two were, were kind of jumped jumped to mind, um, you know, as I saw. I did catch um, a Cujo reference in Gwendy's button box. There you go. Someone offhandedly said something about a dog going crazy. Yeah, and I think that's why I said that from the Castle Rock TV show. Yeah. I think that was just fresh in my head, but it's <laughs> that type of thing. Right. Now, one more thing I would like to address, and uh, because we haven't reviewed, I haven't looked into this yet, and I'm probably going to, but the um, Richard Ferris character is a little reminiscent of another character, and, I, and I'll say that it's probably King's most iconic character. I'm sure there's some Stephen King fans that would argue with that. Um, but there is a, a character named Randall Flagg who uh, has appeared in a number of Stephen King books. Um, originally in The Stand, he's the antagonist in The Stand. He's in Eyes of the Dragon, which still remains one of my favorite Stephen King books, although it's weird. Like, it's not really horror. It's more of like Arthurian fantasy. <laughs> um, and he appears throughout the Dark Tower series. So he's he's kind of timeless. Um, and I happen to notice not only does he dress in black, which is kind of a, as a matter of fact, throughout the, the course of um, the Dark Tower series, he's referred to as the man in black. Mm. Um, but he has the same initials. Yeah. Richard Ferris. Randall yeah. Flag. So I will tell you that although, you know, I knew, you know, obviously right from the top that this is a Castle Rock book and I knew there was going to be references and you see hear little things and. When it dawned on me probably halfway through that first book, I actually messaged Rob and I was like, oh, wow, like this is this is pretty cool. So, again, you know, I haven't looked into it, but I I will likely do a little bit of digging. I I can't be the only person that thought that that might be the man in black. Now, what I will say without spoiling anything is I don't know that this character behaves um, the same way as the as as Randall Flagg does. So I'll leave it at that. I'll, I'll talk to you off the air, but I, I don't want to give anything away to anyone who hasn't read it. Um, but, you know, who knows? Maybe a third book in the series will 
will explain his involvement or his motivations. Hmm. Uh, yeah, a lot of the so I've read Stephen King books like, but a long time ago. Um, so a lot of the references were definitely lost on me, or any of those references were lost on me. The dog going crazy was so on the nose that like, who couldn't you know catch that? Um, yep. But yeah, that's cool. Like, I've always yeah, that liked da- that damn car had a mind of its own, right? <laughs> And they were these monsters were eating the past or whatever. Um, uh, I've always liked that kind of universe thing where, like, you know, authors will kind of bring up or reference or include stuff from other books. And, and King is probably like the most famous author that does that kind of thing, I would imagine, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, I don't want to get off on a, on a, I mean, this book is. A Stephen King book, so I don't spend a lot of time talking about like his other books, but what he does in that Dark Tower series is is pretty goddamn close to to magic, um, from that particular standpoint. Nice, yeah, um, yeah. Do you want to wrap this up and and do the next one? How, I've, I don't remember what to do in this situation. I don't, I don't know. I guess I mean there are two books, so we, we probably have to probably have to get two reviews. All right, um, wonderful to um read a book that takes place in in castle rock um it's it's really i'm not sure it changes it was really to me kind of an adorable story in in how this plays out with this this gwendy and the button box and it having to take place in castle rock potential randall flag some some other stephen king characters um all really fun especially if you're a stephen king fan now I was thinking really hard about this. It's going to be because I know this is a trilogy and I feel, how do I say this? I feel like it's all one big story. So I am going to, I'm going to give this first one five stars because I was fucking enamored um, with it and it taking place in the Stephen King universe. That being said, when I give my stars for this and for Gwendy's magic feather, I am, for the first time I think ever, reserving the right to change my rating based on that third book in the trilogy. (laughs) Because I really feel like this is one big story and that we're just like kind of reviewing sections of a book more so than a book itself. Wow. Does that make sense? Like a reverse 1Q84? Yes. (laughs) Kind of like that, which would be a 48Q1. Yeah, one of those. Yeah. So you gave so, it five. I'm giving it five. I, I really, really was enamored with, with, with that one. All right. So I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be reviewing this from the non Stephen King fan, um, perspective, not saying, you know, just because I haven't read it. I'm not super involved with the universe and understanding the references. I'm an outsider from that perspective. Uh, it's just a charming fucking book. Like, um, it's, it's, it's got a lot of positivity to it and um it just it it was it i'm going to keep it simple it just it made me happy the story was simple and to the point and it had um a kind of a obviously somewhat of a coming of age kind of feel to it it was a it was you know a young girl just kind of figuring out how things work but with this weird magical thing uh, influencing her life and um, all the ups and downs that 
happen in a normal kid's life are now filtered through the presence of this thing. So, uh, super charming book. Love the Gwendy character. Um, and I thought that it was just very well done. And it didn't seem like it had high aspirations. It was just a fun story that, w- that they were trying to tell. And they did that very well. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's four stars. All right. Here is the synopsis. We're moving, <laughs> we're moving right into the second synopsis of this episode. Something evil has swept into the small western main town of Castle Rock on the heels of the latest winter storm. Sheriff Norris Ridgewick and his team are desperately searching for two missing girls, but time is running out to bring them home alive. In Washington, D.C., 37-year-old Gwendy Peterson couldn't be more different from the self-conscious teenage girl who once spent a summer running up Castle Rock suicide stairs. That same summer, she was entrusted, or some might say cursed, with the extraordinary button box by Richard Ferris, the mysterious stranger in the black suit. The seductive and powerful box offered Gwendy small gifts in exchange for its care and feeding until Ferris eventually returned, promising Gwendy she'd never see the box again. One day, though, the button box shows up without warning and without Richard Ferris to explain why or what she's supposed to do with it. The mysterious reappearance of the box, along with the troubling disappearances in Castle Rock, leads Gwendy home again, where she just might be able to help rescue the missing girls and stop a madman before he does something ghastly. So, uh, I know we're going to kind of do the general review thing for this book as well, but um, off the bat, I want to acknowledge that the synopsis, uh, you know, points out that in the first book, um, she is relieved of the box at some point, and um, in this one, it shows back up again. And and that makes me think about, um, it adds an element of, of her how she feels about the box being in her life because she had it in her life for so long and then it was gone for um, probably even longer. And now that it's back, she has to react to its its existence. And so things we didn't talk about to not spoil the first book was her interaction with the box. Like it, uh, in her mind, it helped her in her life to, um, like we talked about before, be fit and have, you know, probably some good runs of good luck and stuff, uh, as far as she she considered that to be what the box's effect was. Um, but there were also some really bad things that happened in her life that she feels, you know, maybe wouldn't have if the box wasn't around. So uh, when the box shows back up, like, it's not necessarily like, oh, great, the box is back, life is going to be good. It's kind of freak, freaking her out. Yeah. And um, she's in a definitely a different position. She's not only an adult, but she's a congresswoman now. Yep. I mean, so some of that, you know, is is there's some question as to how much of that, you know, some self-doubt and how much of that was her and how much of that is, you know, uh, the aid of um, the, the benefits that come with the button box. Um, this one has a very different feel altogether, because right in the in the um, in the background for a good portion of the story and then moving slowly into the foreground are these missing girls. So there wasn't the first book is, you know, more like Rob said, a coming of age tale without like a bigger plot evolving in the background. If that makes sense. This one definitely has a background and that background is the holidays. There's missing girls. Wendy's going home to spend time with her family. Um, And, you know, as a, as a congresswoman, you know, she's got some sway. The, the police kind of keep her in 
in the loop with things or whatever. So there's there's definitely a different feel for this one that's more maybe more traditional narrative than um, the button box. And it also takes place over the course of a couple of weeks versus a number of years. So they are very different in feel, I would say. Yeah. Um, agree. But that being said, um, he still manages to evoke that kind of, this is a narrative of what's happening in Gwendy's life. Um, so I feel like the feel, the tone of it's the same, but absolutely in a narrative perspective, like it goes in a different direction. Um, and that got me worried because when you go from co-authoring something to someone kind of taking the helm, you know, it could go, it could, it could end up not feeling consistent, but I feel like he did a good job of, and you could disagree with me, but I think he did a good job of, of keeping the tone similar, even though like the narrative approach was changed. Oh, oh yeah, no, no, no. I think the voice is is the same. Yeah. Um, I think that if you read these without knowing, I, I I don't know that you would know that one was called. You know what I mean? I don't. I right. wouldn't think. I mean, I knew from opening them that they were, but I can't imagine if I read these with no covers on them and no names that I would think like, huh? I think something's different. Really, Gwendy's magic feather is like if you zoomed in on a particular part of Gwendy's life from the first book and expanded it out to a full a full book. Right. So in that one, it's a glimpse here and it's a couple weeks here and then it's a couple weeks here and like I said over the course of 6 years. If you took any of those parts and really expanded it into its own novel, that's that's essentially what I think Wendy's magic feather is. Yep. I agree. Uh in this one, um she is an adult. What does it say she's 37? Mhm. Um it starts the book by like she's she's at work. She's a congresswoman. And um, she's like, I never just remember there's a part in an elevator where, um, uh, like, she's reflecting on how people look at her and everything because she's 37, but she looks way younger. And she's a congresswoman, so she's got, like, um, that thing of, of people thinking negatively about her, maybe out of, like, jealousy, but also out of, like, what's she, she doing here? She doesn't, she hasn't earned it kind of thing. Um, so she's still, even though the box... Uh, has been out of her life for a while. Um, she's still looking good and doing well. And it does, it does, I believe in the beginning of the book, it catches you up what happened between like college and, mm -hmm. and now. So it tells you about like her little stint as an author and stuff, because that was hinted at, um, uh, even in the synopsis of the first book, talking about her writing stories, I think. Um, so yeah, the book at the beginning really catches you up, but it also shows you that even outside of the box, she's still got maybe, you know, like a little rabbit foot tucked in her pocket or something. She's got luck is on her side. Indeed. And like I said, she goes home, which means that she's going to have to, you know, encounter some people from, from her youth, obviously. I mean, she goes home regularly enough, but obviously she's going to revisit with her parents and some other people. And then amongst this, um, she is, uh, involved at some level in this investigation into um, the missing girls. So she's working with the police uh, on things and they're keeping her posted. And, um, you know, we get to see, uh, we get to see the box in, in action again. So uh, I have a question for you and I want to see like uh, the way, 
the like the focus of the book as as it goes from the beginning to the middle to the end in my mind it felt a lot like it was the fir- the beginning of the book was just Gwendy's life the middle was just like uh her dealing with the fact with the box was back and then it was more toward like the second half to the end that the the missing girls plot really became something that I f- cared about mm-hmm. like so it wasn't that it was just all dumped at the end but like it didn't seem like the focus until later in the book. Did you feel that way? Yeah, it, it builds up slowly. Yeah. So it, it's it's always there. It's there from, you know, probably, I don't know, the first 25 pages, I would guess. Um, and it's in the background, but it becomes more predominant um, yeah. throughout the course of the book, yeah. for sure. You said that better, build slowly. I was like, it wasn't important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, build slowly. That's a good way to say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, we do have an appearance from more... Um, uh, cast members and mentions of people from from other uh, Castle Rock um, stories. Uh, the the big one um, probably being uh, Norris Ridgwick, who was mentioned. Just mentioned of Frank Dodd, who was a character in the Dead Zone. Um, so yeah, a, a, a little bit more um, you know homage to um, other castle rock players, other Stephen King characters, which again is a super, super nice touch. If, if, you know, you're someone doing the air quotes in the know. And then at the back of my mind through this whole one is, um, you know, is, is it, is it Randall flag? Well, will there actually ever be an answer? You know, mm-hmm. is there, and, and this one I'll say, and I'm going to say this, I'm gonna leave it out there. This one kind of comes with a little bit of a twist this book and i'm not gonna talk about it on air at all because i I think it's a spoiler rob and i are gonna probably discuss it just (laughs) on our own after the fact because i want to get his take on it um but yeah so there's there's something that there's there's kind of a twist in this one that that didn't that wasn't in the first book yeah so uh so something i want to acknowledge we didn't really talk about in uh the button box uh conversation probably because it's a shorter story is the is the creepy slash scary um aspect to the books um i mean i would i would hesitate to call button box horror but it does have some scary shit that goes on um and there are some moments in um magic feather that are pretty chilling and so um as as positive and happy as we talk about this book you know we're a little bit i always say we're a little desensitized to the creepy scary stuff but like there are some moments in this book and then a couple also in button box that are like really chilling. And, and it, it is a testament to the fact that these guys know how to write, um, scary stuff in general, but also like, um, especially in magic feather, I feel like playing on vulnerability is, is like one of the ways that the book becomes scary. So, weird things happen when um you know she's by herself running or something like that um uh, someone tries to get into the building that she's living in things things of that nature that i feel like what were were very very well done in the first book a little bit but definitely more so in this one yeah i i uh I agree. And i think part of that is that we we you know goes back to that focusing on one period of time yeah you know that it's easier to kind of do that instead of just dropping snippets here and there right so i uh i definitely i definitely agree and that the creep factor went up um 
and and overall the the narrative is is a little more what you're used to in this one so it doesn't right. you know it's not as jumpy so yeah. yes for sure do you want to do you want to wrap this one up i don't know if there's much more we can say about it yeah that's the trick um i guess we should acknowledge the fact that this book is called gwendy's magic feather um so in the first book button box there was an actual button box um in magic feather there does exist a feather and I'm not going to talk much about it, but like I want to say that the way that the feather was introduced probably almost brought me to tears. It was just like a really like warm and 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 like um like thoughtful, caring moment. Um, but yeah, there is an actual feather um, that is part of this story. Yes, there is. I didn't know how we could talk about the feather, but I think you did a good job. Yeah, so that's all I'm going to say. Um, I'll let you take uh, take this wrap up first. Yeah. So uh, I was hot off the, <laughs> I was hot off reading uh, Buttonbox when I jumped into Magic Feather, and um, like I said, I was very charmed by Buttonbox, so um, it was easy to settle in. I think I texted Livia said I was like, I had just started the book and I was already sixty pages in. They read very fast, um, and they're and it's just a comfortable read. Um, I, I don't think the the second one's definitely bigger. It's like three hundred. 20 pages or something 330 pages I probably got through it in, in a few hours because it's just easy to get through um, so it was nice it was nice getting right back in and picking up where we left off with Gwendy and seeing uh, what she's up to the congresswoman thing was a little bit of a surprise for me but I feel like the expository information at the beginning of the book got me up to speed nicely all that being said um, I think he did a great job of carrying on a very charming narrative and 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 f- making it more focused and detailed um, and giving us a story that again, like I feel like because the first book was so focused on Gwendy that I was more concerned about her day to day, what's going on with her than like this plot of the missing girls, but he really brought it around at the end and did something with it. So overall, I think he did a great job of, of following up button box and um, yeah, I'll go forward to half stars. Everything that Rob said. Um, one of the things that really struck me about this is uh, Chismar does a great, great job of just being like, here's what you missed between the books and not trying to like slowly weave it in through the course of the story. It's like, here's five pages. This is everything you need to know about Gwendy from the last time we saw her when she was uh, 18 and to now, you know, when she's 37 or whatever it is, she's 20 or whatever at the end of the last book, you know what I mean? I mean, so he does this great job of just being like, here's the information you need. We're not going to screw around with this. Um, Definitely a more focused story. And what I think this one perhaps loses in charm, it makes up for in in narrative. So, again, they're they're very different um, stylistically, uh, narrative speaking, although I do think that that Richard's voice is uh matches up very well with however that first one was was co-written there's a little bit in an afterward about how they went about doing it but i, I don't think there's a you know any, any type of uh i don't know what the word i'm looking for there's no distraction in, in it going from a co-written book to to a, a single author book but here's the but this is why i reserved my right to change my my star rating I have some questions after reading the second book. I really enjoyed it, but I can't give this one five stars. I'm going to give this one four stars 
this can only go up. I can only change this review if and when the third part of the trilogy comes out. Because I feel like it left a couple of things uh, in a way that I, I, I didn't, I don't want to say I didn't like them. I would just like to see some resolution um, to a couple of points. I'm going to share those with Rob. I'm not going to share it with listeners because I don't want there to be any kind of, um, you know, spoiler or, or whatever. Um, but I did really enjoy it. So even with that that downer, I'm giving it a four. And I will revisit this four when we read, and likely at this point, I would imagine, review the third book in the trilogy, um, which does not have a date, or at least didn't as of the publication of this book, or the printing of this book. So down the line, a year from now, six months from now, two years from now, I reserve the right to move my four. It won't move down, but it could move up. So four stars. I'm fingers crossed that the third book is going to be called Gwendy's Copy of the Book Anthology. I mean, you never know. You never know. So... <laughs> Um, this was kind of neat. Um, and doing the two books, um, together was, was, uh, was good. was good. I mean, I mean, I've, I've warmed up to novellas over the years. It was not something I was a fan of when we started this podcast. Um, but I, they have grown on me. Um, but it was kind of nice to see both these parts of the story for us, like sequentially. I will say too, if you're interested in Gwendy's button box, it's on like a special time sale. I, there's no date because it's Amazon, but you can pick it up for three bucks for your Kindle. That's how I read the first one. And then uh, there won't be a Kindle edition available of um, Gwendy's Magic Feather until January. So you can still pick up a beautiful hard copy to the cover art on on this one. I'm, I'm sure it looks really cool on the first one as I look at it on um, Amazon. I know you have two paper copies, but I love this. Uh, I love this cover. The cover art is is really solid. Now, okay, did you did you look at the uh, the if you took the ja- the book the the dust jacket off like the actual like hard cover like the cover cover? Yes. Like there, so for anybody who's listening, if you take the dust jacket off and you're looking at the actual book, usually it's just like a plain cardboard, mm-hmm. like you know whatever color they chose. This has got like gold leaf, um, whatever embossed, yeah, embossed, right? yeah. embossed, right? yeah, um, uh, of like the ca- a Capitol building and a feather and the hat that you know makes an appearance in the book a lot, and the title Gwendy's Magic Feather and, and the author's name, um, on the front cover um usually that's just blank and then you know obviously the the spine has something but like they went all out on this and it looks really great like it's it's probably the like the first book in a long time hardcover that i've owned that i would like want to take off the dust jacket to look at the covers so yeah (laughs) nice attention to detail uh for cemetery dance on that do you um not to change the subject, because Cemetery Dance definitely is something that merits some conversation. Um, do you read your books with the dust jackets on? That's a very good question. Um, I feel like I'm 50-50 on that. Uh, it all depends on... It depends a lot on the dust jacket, but also... Um, I think when when I'm at toward the beginning or end of a book, I don't. But like if it's in the middle, if I'm in like the real meat of it, I can leave the dust jacket on and read fine. If that makes sense. Yeah, I always don't want to damage the dust jacket, so I always yeah. take them off. That makes so sense. I, yeah, yeah, I guess I, I don't know what other people do. <laughs> I just feel like if you weren't, like if they weren't designed to be taken off, they'd be somehow attached. Right. Like even if it was just like a little bit of glue, like a couple dabs of glue, like they wouldn't come off as easy. I don't know. Maybe we should look into the history of mm. dust jackets. That might make for a that... super exciting episode. <laughs> super where we... fascinating. Where we talk about yeah, where we talk about the history of dust jackets. But you did mention <laughs> cemetery dance. 
we would be remiss if we didn't mention um, that not only uh, is Richard Chismar this uh, the author of these two books, but he is, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he is Cemetery Dance. He is the founder of Cemetery Dance. So just in case, you know, you, you live in a hole and, and weren't uh, aware of this, Cemetery Dance is a horror magazine that's been around for 30-ish years now, um, which... You know, his articles and um, someone got someone was just really excited about getting published in Cemetery Dance. Someone we're we're socially um, adjacent to somewhere online. But like Cemetery Dance is a big, big deal. And uh, this dude uh, not only founded it, but I believe still runs it. And then there's the other side of the coin, which for book collectors is a huge deal. And that's the Cemetery Dance, um, the, the, the book side, Cemetery yeah. Dance books. So they published Gwendy's uh, Magic Feather. But they typically publish um, limited edition. Like here's, you know, uh, you know, a, 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 I'm just throwing stuff out there. Here's like a Robert McCammon leather bound gold, like leafed pages with, sprinkled with fairy dust. And there's only like 21 copies of it um, out there. And then exclusive. So uh, Mallerman, right? Didn't Mallerman have one or two exclusives with Cemetery Dance? Um, yeah, I think that um, on this, the day of the pig, uh, which is one of the ones I don't have of Mallerman's, which really pisses me off, um, it, it came out of them. But I'm on their website right now, and I'm looking at um, some of their like authors that they've published, and like this dude puts up some good names, like uh, um, you know, obviously I, there's your buddy F. Paul Wilson is one of them, Peter mm-hmm. Straub. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert McCammon's on there, Stephen King, Dean Koontz, Joe Lansdale, Jack Ketchum, Brian Keene, uh, Christopher Golden, we reviewed a couple of his books, Joe Hill, um, obviously, you know, Ray Bradbury, I thought that guy was dead. Um, I mean, it, it, he, he is. Jillian, I don't think that, yeah. a, lot, a lot of dudes, but Jillian Flynn's on there, so there you go. Um, yeah, he's putting up some, some serious, um, serious stuff. He has published um, also, or they have published. I guess we should stop treating it like like it's the one man show. I don't think it is. Um, uh, some Richard Layman stuff too, um, and I believe, and I could be wrong about this. So again, ugh, I believe Richard Layman's daughter worked for Cemetery Dance for some time. There you go. It's a big deal. Is what yeah, it's it's a say. huge deal. And like I said, I want to give him credit for putting out two great books. But I mean, talk about somebody who's a, who's a, I don't even know what the hell I'm trying to say. Like who's a, you know, a, a key contributor to the genre of horror. I mean, Richard Chismar is, is definitely there, not just in his writing, but in, in the work he does to bring it to people. So there you go. I'm going to order a cemetery dance t-shirt right now. There you go. Are there t-shirts? Yeah. Are they nice t-shirts? Well, I mean, if in case he's listening, of course I'm going to say, yeah, they look oh, great. Oh, yeah, I got you. Okay. All right. <laughs> that sounds that sounds cool. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, this is this is where Rob and I kind of uh, diverge a little bit. Um, Rob's in love with printed books. I'm a little less in love with printed books, which I realize is a terrible thing to say when you host a book review podcast. I love books and I love stories, and I can appreciate books and the love of books, but I don't like reading them. I like reading my digital books. So, um, but I, I still recognize and, and am, am sometimes very envious of some of the things I see come out from uh, Cemetery Dance. Some of these editions are are pretty stunning. 
So speaking of print books, um, I said, do you want to, can we step away? Or is it cool to change the topic? Sure. Or sure. I didn't want to, I didn't want to, you know, Cemetery Dance started in 1988, by the way. I was just a little, I was just a little Rob. Yeah, I think I said, I think I said like 30 years, right? So it'd be like 31 years, right? Math. That's, yeah, sounds about right. Yep. Yep. Um, that's a long time. I sent you a picture because um, I redid my bookshelves in a very dangerous way. And then I changed my mind and redid my bookshelves in a much more safe way. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned this before, but um, I put uh, on the podcast, but I, I I mentioned the fact that I'm on a mission to have a print copy of every book that we have reviewed. Um, and I'm about, I'm over halfway there, which sounds crazy because we've reviewed, you know, you would think that I would have books of all of them, but we've read a lot of stuff digitally, but I sent Livius a picture of these updated bookshelves and it's starting to get really impressive to see all the books that we've talked about physically sitting on a shelf because it takes up a ton of space. So it's like a physical manifestation of, of something that's very like intangible uh so it makes me feel good about like hey we didn't spend eight years just talking like something came out of it so it's kind of cool it's uh it's kind of impressive to see and like i said i know that he's only halfway and that sadly he'll never get there because there are some yeah. digital only things that we've reviewed right so there's there's some some challenges to, to what you're doing i get the feeling that rob's gonna uh, use that iPhone camera and probably get something on the Instagram or something, a, a picture of the books we've reviewed shortly. Now that he's got them all in sequential order, it's animal. Yeah. He's got all the books, all the David James Keaton books are broken up. <laughs> it's killing me, but it's also kind of cool. Yeah, Chuck Wendig's entire collection is all spread out throughout uh, throughout the whole thing. So, yeah. but it is it is very cool and and very admirable. Like I'm totally like I like I said I don't I'm not nearly as enamored with print books, but like I'm out and I see a book I'm like we reviewed that and I like message Rob, do you have this? Right. <laughs> he says no, and I just I go and I buy it like because I want him to have all these. So I am living vicariously through you and your book collection. That's um, well that that's nice because well. You can also visit it when you want to because you live nearby. But like, you also don't sure. have to store hundreds of books in your in your in your place. So that's that's a very that's a very good point. I can come visit them and pet the books, and then I can <laughs> move on with my life. I have that's books. Fair. I'm sure I've got a hundred books here. Maybe I'm turned around and look at the bookshelf. So yeah, there's books. I just most of them are signed. That's about all I really keep. It's books that are signed. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Like. Uh, someone was asking me the other day they're like you must have a ton of books and i tell them like when i came back to illinois from vermont i ga- i got rid of all but maybe 10 12 books so like mm-hmm. everything i have now has just been acquired since the podcast started and i try to keep it to significant books either books that we've read books that have been signed to me or you know first editions of things that i care about like one thing i i just got i got excited i was in when I was on vacation and I was in a bookstore, I found a signed first edition of the A Walk Among the Tombstones, mm-hmm. the Lawrence Block book. So I was like, man, and I, I just picked it up because like it's that's just a cool book to find. So like uh, and, and I've been expanding my Elmore Leonard collection. I've got um, uh, Rum Punch and Get Shorty. And like when I see those out and about, I'll pick those up. But um, yeah, for the most part, it's just like like you said, significant books. They have to have a meaning in order to be on the shelf. Yeah. 
it's very cool yeah i'm always i always like people who like collect things i just don't have it in me it's too much work man yeah leave it to me whenever rob's off every time rob is off work even if he's on vacation i get a picture from somewhere inside a half price books <laughs> it's very and it's true. a picture it's a picture of whatever he found that he's buying so um how many bookstores did you hit while you were in texas um uh, it's funny we um when we were trying to fill time one of the things we would do is just like so uh half price books is headquartered out of uh austin so like texas has i think more um, they, have, they have that big book repository there don't they oh come on <laughs> Anyway, so like one of the things we do is like, oh, what are we going to do? Oh, let's go to a bookstore. So um, we went to a handful of half price books in Dallas. We actually went to a Barnes and Noble as well because I was looking for um, the U- the U.S. version of the Starless Sea. Um, I ended up finding a better situation for that. But um, and then we went to book people in Austin, which, man, I would I would tell you to go to Austin just to go to this bookstore. It's so cool. I kept I kept messaging Livius from there. Um, and I picked up, I had to get, this is when, you know, you're in a bookstore that like speaks to you. I had to get a fucking, um, basket to put all the books in. Cause I couldn't carry them. <laughs> couldn't just carry them in my hands. Um, I spent, and I'm not even, this isn't a brag. This is just, uh, I, I spent $180 at that bookstore. <laughs> Good Lord, man. Wow. <laughs> I saw the hall though. I yeah. mean, it's, it's a good hall. So yeah. that's a, uh, yeah. And well, I did buy you a gift. So, I know. I appreciate that. Yeah. So anyway, love it. Love it. And now I'm back and I'm just going to keep going to the same half price books that I go to over and over again. There you go. All right. Um, you know, a couple other things we want to get out of the way. Happy Thanksgiving. So you're probably listening to this on Thanksgiving or the day before Thanksgiving, or I don't know when this is posting, right? But I'm assuming somewhere in that time frame. So mm-hmm. happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. I hope you have a great holiday. Not really sure what's coming up next week. Um, more than likely an interlude maybe we can work something cool out for next week but uh, no book we're taking the holiday off I know it feels like we just (laughs) took it off but um, for anybody who's not you know terribly familiar Rob and I are both in retail and I know that Rob's week isn't going to be stupid um, because of what he does mine will be so I'm going to take a a week off from uh, reading books for the podcast plus I'll give Rob and I a chance to catch up on some other topics or who knows maybe we'll have a guest or something um, next week so pretty much all i've got man yeah that's it um i'm glad to be back uh frank edler can rest rest easy he doesn't have to worry about picking up slack i'm back <laughs> um i i have to catch up now like you're two you're two episodes ahead of me um or like 1.9 or whatever yeah um i gotta catch up i gotta do one without you i gotta figure out a way to make that happen you should figure that out next year because I think we're I think we're pretty settled in for the rest of the year. Yeah. So, all right, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Join us, uh, I guess. Happy Thanksgiving. Join us when you're all full of turkey and stuff for next week. Until then, I am Rob Olson, and I'm Livius Ned, and keep reading.